Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are going to be studying this morning um, Parshat Noach. Last week, of course, we studied um, about the story in Gan Eden, in Eden. We talked about... Um, not reading God's call to Adam as Ayeka, where are you? But changing the vowels and reading it Echa, the first word of the book of Lamentations. How? How could this happen that there is now a chasm between us? Um, so we pick up from there um, and quick recap to bring us to Noah um, is it got worse. God was sad. Like we talked last week about Echa. God is lamenting, right? That there's now this distance between God and the earthling that was not intended. And God is very sad um, about that. Well, it goes from bad to much, much, much worse. Um, right after that, we have, of course, the two first siblings, Cain and Hevel. Remember what happens there? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing good. Good Sheldon, gold star. Right? So Cain kills Hevel. Um, and so that's the first murder. So, it, I mean, so it just kind of goes from bad to worse. Um, and now we're going to see the consequences um, begin uh, of that. But first, we're going to read the beginning of Parsha Noah. We're going to skip the middle of the story. So if you need to review the story, like, fine, you can do that. You can read it at your own pace, whatever. But we're going to skip the bulk of the flood narrative. We're going to begin the text, and we're going to go to after the flood um, to look at a couple of things, and we're going to stay there. Every culture in the ancient Near East, before Israel, co-current with Israel, and after it, they all have a flood story. Because there must have been a cataclysmic event that looked like the entire world was underwater, right? Um, if you think about the narrow range people had, you know, we've seen places here where it looks like everything for any visible distance is underwater so, and things die and it, and it causes all kinds of, you know, horror, horrible things to the ecology and to, to life. So um, plant life, animal life. So, because every ancient Near Eastern culture has a flood story, we believe there's probably some historical, you know, antecedent. So we, 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 don't, we don't ask why is there a flood story? There has to be a flood story. Everybody's got a flood story. The question is, how did the Israelites reconstruct the flood story? How is the Israelite flood story different from ancient Near Eastern Flood stories. So we've done that a couple of times. I've been teaching here, y'all, for 13 years. So for a couple of times, we did that. Um, we're not doing that today. So, um, so we are we are going to look um, at, <clears throat> at what causes it and then the results of the flood, um, because those are two factors that are important in all of these stories. What makes it happen? In m many of the ancient Near Eastern stories, human beings are irritating the gods. So the gods come and bring a flood and start, yeah, I'm done with that. And then um, and then what are the consequences? Um, the survivor becomes a demigod is the Babylonian story. Um, that is very much not our story. Right. OK, so we're going to look at what causes it and what are the results rather than, than the actual way that the Israelites tell 
the flood story. So you need to find Parshat Noah in your Bibles, which means you are going to go to chapter, we're in Genesis, and you're going to chapter 6, verse 9. Those of you who are farsighted or who are sitting right by it can just look at the screen. I'm playing now with the Everett Fox translation, starting Parshat Noah. Okay, what is our situation? We are getting told about Toldot. Toldot is about generations. And so we're getting the beginning of the story of the generations of Noah. The reason that's important is because ain't nobody else. In a little while, every all human beings will descend from Noah, right? Because he's the only one left. Well, he, he and his wife that the Midrash calls Nama. Okay, so Noah, Ela Toldot Noah. This, these are the generations of Noach. This is the story of Noach. Noach ish tzaddik, tamim. So he is a righteous person. Tamim is um, simple, but not in the bad way that we use that word in English. So simple, kind of like straightforward, pure, like. Not like Tom from the four brothers in the Haggadah. Yes. But but there it already is taking on more of the negative. negative exactly. So here, this is a good word. Um, you'll see it on on uh, Jewish gravestones. Ishtam. He was a kind of a wholehearted, straightforward person. Um, so sorry, my, pardon my boarding house reach, Sarah. Um, okay. So now the key for the rabbis is that it says uh uh oh already Barry unmute and tell me what here we go yeah I just wanted to remind us that uh, there is some uh, later on an, an implicit criticism that God wanted to destroy the earth and like unlike Abraham or Moses he says nothing he just goes and does what what is being told Nahot. exactly so we'll get we'll get there so um. He was Sadiq, he was righteous, Bidorotav, in his generation. So to Barry's point, the, the rabbis ask, why did why does the Torah add Bidorotav in his generation? Why doesn't it just say he was Ish Sadiq? He was a righteous person. And the rabbis say maybe it means he wasn't so righteous. He was just better than the rest. He was better than the other bums, right? And one of the arguments they give is what Barry just said. Because unlike Avraham, when God says, I'm going to bring a flood and destroy everything, Noah doesn't argue. Noah doesn't say, wait, 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 wait. There are innocent children who are going to die. How, how can you do that? Right? So, so that's one of the, one, the things they use to, dis, to answer the question, why is it in his generation? And not just he's a tzaddik, he's a righteous person. Et Elohim hitalech Noah. So Noah walked with Elohim, walked with God. He bear, he has three sons, Shem, Cham, and Yafet. And my bar mitzvah kid who has this parsha, who is hilarious, wrote, not a very Jewish name, Ham. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. His grandfather wrote television, including I Love Lucy. <laughs> Schiller, Bob Schiller, a blessed memory. So this is his grandson, and he, the grandson, got the gift. All right. Um, Hamas. So the earth had gone essentially bad. The earth, the earth was filled with 
Hamas. It is the same word. Did they know wow. that? Yes. They chose their name because it is about violence. It is about violence. That's Purposeful. Big word in Arabic. So this is exactly the... Um, Barry, you'll have to tell me my dictionary didn't say... Um, no, Hamas is enthusiasm. <laughs> it's enthusiasm in Arabic. In Arabic, enthusiasm. Enthusi- but, but it's an acronym. It's a, like a backronym or an acronym of uh, the Islamic resistance movement. Uh, it's just a coincidence. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go there. Well, I'm not. I, I'm not I don't sure think, I I don't think they knew the Hebrew word Hamas and chose the I, name I, of know, the organization. When your violence is against Hebrew-speaking people, I don't know. I just. Like a good I don't. But so the world, in either case, when we talk about what does Torah have to do with us, the world was filled with Hamas. Bayar Elohim etaaret v'hinei nishchata. God saw that the earth had essentially gone to ruin, that all flesh was a disaster. And God says to Noach, there's going to be a limit. Kate, there's going to be a limit. Um, and that's what has arisen before me. This, this is what has come to mind for God. Because the earth is filled with chaos, violence, awfulness um, because of them, meaning human beings. That So I'm going to destroy them from off the face of the earth. So make yourself a teva, um, only used here. Uh, ark is what we call it in English, but, you know, Teva, make yourself a teva from um, gopher wood. Um, and then God, God goes on to say, this is how you are to make it, right? So this is how big it's supposed to be. Notice, as Barry pointed out, as the Midrash points out, Noah says nothing. When God says, I'm going to wipe everything up. He says nothing. Verse 16, Sohar ta'ase la teva. You shall make a tzohar. In the Teva, this is a Hapax Legomenon. This is the only time we see this word in Torah. So we have nothing to compare it to. Um, so we don't really know how to translate it other than to say, well, what's it for? Right? You know, like, what what does it seem to be for? Um, it seems to be something about letting in light. We know the dove is going to, you know, the, the birds that he sends are going to fly. So it's got to be some kind of opening. But Toha doesn't appear anywhere else. So we don't really have a way to translate it other than looking at the context here. There's lots written about Toha. I kept Sarah up way too late last night telling her all about it. <laughs> and we're not going to do it. <laughs> teva and Toha. Teva becomes the word for word in later Hebrew. So don't, don't read enter the ark. Read enter the word. Okay. Yeah, there's lots. Okay. But I'm going to stop going there. All right. So we're going through. The, again, we're not going to go through the story. We all know he takes animals onto the ark, right? Then he's got to take care of the animals on the ark. There's two versions of this story woven together here. In some, it's two of each species. In the other version, that's right here. We've done that too in the past, breaking those stories out and reading them completely separately. In one, it's two of every kind. In the other one, it's seven pairs of the kosher animals and only two of the non-kosher animals. 
but we are not going to talk about different <laughs> versions that are here. So there are two different Israelite traditions represented here in this story, and the editor had to represent them both because if you want people to buy the national book, you better put right the Wawa of Northern Aggression in there, right? as well as the Civil War. Both versions have to be in there. The great unpleasantness between the states, right, has to be in there, or the South ain't buying the book. So that's why we have both versions together. It's not that the editor didn't know what they were doing. They knew what they were doing, but they had to have both versions of that story if if the people were going to buy this as their national history book or, or book of, you know, the stories they live by. Okay. The Dove... Seven days more. Aren't we still seeing that happen with the story of the hospital bombing, for instance? Two versions of the same story. Mm, happens all the time. Except the only difference is when you're needing it to be literally true, that's when it becomes problematic, right? right? So people who need to make this literally what happened have a bit of a problem. Because you have two different versions. It's very clear. One, it, it rains for this amount of time. And the other one, it rains for this amount of time. And they're both here. So so they, you know, twist themselves into interpretive pretzels to, to figure out how to harmonize those. Okay. So here we are. Um, here we are at the end of the flood. So the first instinct of Noah, when he gets off the boat is to build an altar for yod heh vav And he takes from all of the pure animals, meaning the ones you can eat, the kosher ones, um, and from all of the birds that are kosher, and he makes offerings on the Mizbeach, on the altar. Vayarach Adonai Ereach Hanichoach, and God, yod heh smells the amazing aroma of meat on the grill. And right, and so, and God is happy. Like that, that's a good thing, right? And so God says, I am not ever going to destroy where I'm verse 21. I will never curse the ground again on humankind's account, since the human heart forms is evil from its youth. All right. So he yets their lave ha'adam, the kind of the shape of the human heart is evil from their young days. And I will never again strike down kol chai, all life, right? Ka'asher asiti, as I have done. Never again all the days of the earth shall sowing and harvest cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night ever cease. God blesses Noah and his sons and says to him, Bear, uh, be fruitful and multiply, right? This is, who did God say this to before? He promises Jacob, God, the character God promises Jacob, your offspring will be as, as the stars of the heaven. He says it to Adam. Adam, be fruitful and multiply. And now to Noah. That's the, the, our hearts are evil from birth, basically, and then he blesses us. What? That is the reason for sinning the flood in the first place. So, yeah, we're going to have a little conversation about that. That's why we're here. That's exactly why we're here. So thank you, um, Lisa, because that's that's exactly right. It's kind of like head scratcher. So wait, you blotted everything out because world because humans are so awful. 
that it's filled, the world is filled with Hamas. So you wipe it out knowing that the human is evil from the time that they're young. And that's never going to change. What? What? Okay. So we're, we're going to go there. Um, all things crawling about that live for, for you shall they be for eating. This is the first time we get in Eden. We were told you can eat from all the stuff that meant vegetation. Now, anything alive. Now you can eat meat. God seems to have accepted a couple of things. One, humanity has got evil in their heart from the time they're young. And that ain't ever going to change. Two, they need to eat meat. I don't love it, says God, but God seems to say, okay, I get it. Now you can eat meat. So Lisa, add that to your list of what's up with that? Where does the story of the Lama and Bavnik come in? The people who are pure, is it later? Midrash. Okay. It's not in Torah. But they tie it to Torah, of course, but it's it's all Midrash. The the 36 righteous souls, which is I often say about Sarah Thompson. I say she's a Lamed Vavnik. She's one of the 36 righteous souls that keep the world spinning. <laughs> Not lying. I've said it often about Sarah Thompson. But, but, meat that has in it its blood, you cannot eat. So you can eat the flesh. You cannot eat the blood. Right? And, and furthermore, y'all's blood, y'all's blood for that. I will demand now from anything that lives. I will demand retribution in the case of human blood being spilled. Right. (laughs) Is it a lot over there? Is everything okay? I heard a big sigh. Whoever now, in parentheses now, because why would it be said here if it were true before? So meaning now, whoever sheds human blood for that human shall his blood be shed. For in God's image, God made mankind, humankind. Y'all, tem, pru or vu, be fruitful and multiply, swarm on the earth and become many on it. And God said to Noah and his sons, as for me, Hineni. What is Hineni? Here I am. Here I am. Hineni. Mekim et briti itchem. I am making, I am establishing a covenant with y'all and y'all's offspring after you. And all of the, all of the living things, Right. Also, all those going out of the ark um, of all the living things of the earth, I will establish my I am establishing my covenant with you. What is the covenant? All flesh shall never be cut off again by the waters of the deluge. Never again shall there be deluge to bring the earth to ruin. And God said, oh, I kept Sarah up super late because then I talked about the rainbow. And God said, and then we're not going to talk about that either. God said, this is the sign of the covenant, which I set between me and you and all living beings that are with you for ageless generations. My bow, my keshet, I will set in the clouds. 
that it may serve as a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I, oh, I like this word, when I becloud the earth. I love that. Um, when I becloud the earth with clouds, I mean, what else would you becloud the earth with? I guess like, wait, when I becloud the earth with clouds and in the clouds, the bow is seen. Never again shall the waters become a deluge, right? The flood. It's got a capital D because we're talking about the flood to bring all flesh to ruin. When the bow is in the clouds, I will look at it to call to mind the age old covenant between God and all living things, all the flesh that is on the earth. And God says to Noah, this is the sign. Remember, we talk about Ot, a sign. Ot is always a positive thing. There's always a good thing in Torah. Shabbat is an Ot, right? Ot leolam. Shabbat is an Ot about our covenant, our, our special covenant as the Jewish people with God. This is with all humanity. All humanity descends from Noah. This covenant is being made with all of humanity. Right. The ut is the keshet for all humanity to remind God, oh, right, I'm not supposed to wipe them out. I'm not supposed to wipe them out. I'm not supposed to wipe them out. Because um, because I imagine God often is like, right, like just to, just about ready. Um, I'm not supposed to wipe them out. So um, so ut is always a good thing. And um, and the ut for this co- this covenant is the keshet is the rainbow. Okay. All right. So now you're all like, what? She can focus on. All right. So going back to six, let's go back to the beginning of our story. I'm going to go back even a little bit before that because we just started at Parshat Noah. But remember, originally, these breaks weren't here. Somebody put these breaks in. So look at what's just before Parshat Noah begins. Right? We get that. Um, to Lemach, he has two sons. One of them is called Noah. We're in we're in uh, verse thirty of whatever chapters before the one we just so five chapter five verse thirty. It doesn't matter. You don't have to follow if you don't want to. You can look at the screen, whatever. Right. Five hundred years old. Sorry. So yeah. So that's the beginning of Noah, the giants, demigods, all that, all that stuff. Okay, but. But what happens at verse at verse five of chapter six, where, uh, right before Parsha Noach begins? Fayar and Yudhevafe sees ki ra'at adam that that much has become ra'at adam the evil of the human of humankind ba'aretz right in the earth, and again. People's heart, the, the heart of the human, rock ra ko hayom, is just bad. All time, koyom, all day long, all day. God regrets making the human ba'aretz in the land. Here's a word we're going to focus on. Vayit at save. El Libo. This is a reflexive verb. Barry, how would you translate the yit at save? It became sad or made himself sad. Okay. So this is a reflexive verb. So it's not something directed outward. It's a verb that flips back on the self. 
Um, so lots of languages have this. We don't have this in English. You know, we say something like she brushed her own hair to make it like we add words to make we, the, the she brushed the brushed. The verb doesn't change in Hebrew and in many other languages in French to brush her hair, you know, to bus, you know, you, you, you add, you add something to make it reflect. Okay. So, right. So, so atzuv, sad, but it's a reflexive verb. So is God, but it's not causative exactly. It's not saying God caused God's self to be sad. God self-satisfied. He saddened himself. But it, that's more active. Yeah. It's very hard. It's very hard to translate because we don't have it in English. It doesn't seem it's causative. Right. But somehow it's about an internal thing that is happening with the divine about becoming sad once God realizes that God regrets God's creating the earthling. So is it right? So does the regret cause the sorrow or does creating the earthling cause the sorrow? We're not clear. What we know is God is very, very sad. And I have to believe God, you know, the God I don't believe in that I'm now going to say something about God watching CNN and MSNBC right now has got to be very, very, very sad about having created human beings who can do this to each other. I I get the instinct to write this story. You know, I don't believe in a God who thinks or, you know, whatever, or makes decisions or regrets or is sad. But I certainly, if I were to project something onto a being I did believe created all of this, I would write a story that says there's some regret going on about I gave them free will. And it turns out they are just they're destroying each other. Maybe the spirit inside of us that is God re- reacts that way. I-, I believe that's true. The part of us that, you know, I do believe that there's a spark of whatever divine the divine is. It's in each of us. And that spark within each of us is suffering at what we're seeing and doing and and has to and i've said many times over the last 12 days i'm filled with sadness and regret that this is what we've evolved into and that is what the biblical narrative is saying it was bad enough remember how we decided last week it was really bad that they turned on each other and blamed each other right away that was the sin that got them expelled not eating Blaming each other, not taking responsibility. That God says, Ayeka, Echa, how could it be? You you ate from the tree, now you know that and and this and really you you can't take any responsibility, you blame each other. So now it just goes downhill. And God gets to a point where God can't bear it. Well, God is so sorrowed at what he created, she created. Then I don't understand why God didn't start over again. And why, why, why did God allow Noah and his family to survive? Why didn't he just wipe everything out and start from scratch? What an excellent question you and Lisa have. <laughs> I didn't pay her. I didn't pay her. I didn't set that up. 
What an excellent question. So while we're handing out the papers, um, I want to point out a few things. Look at the first word in, in uh, verse six. You don't have to know Hebrew to see these set center letters. Nun and Chet. Nun and Chet. Vinachem Adonai. God is in regret. So what are these two letters? Nun and Chet. What does that spell? Noach. Noach. That's comfort. So, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami. Comfort, comfort, my people. Nachama is comfort. You miss all of this in the English. They translate it as regret. The word for regret has within it the shoresh, the root of comfort. What is God's comfort going to be? Noach. It's all in the word, the verb. It's all there. You could you could write six chapters of midrash here. Nachama comfort in the word regret. What is that related to? Noach. If you flip Noach, if you look in a mirror, I wish I had my whiteboard that I used to jump up now and do stuff with. Noach. If you flip Barry, Noach. If you flip it in a mirror, what is what is the word? Beautiful. Chain. Noach backwards is chain. Beauty. Um, Yes, we could use grace. Okay? So all of that is in this word and God regretted. There's, okay, but we don't have time. Okay. We're going to go to Beit Atsev at the end. Andrelamuja, remind me, Sarah. I want to go to Andrew. I want to finish with Andrelamuja. But for now, we're going to go to the question, what is going on with, right, with this? If if people are bad, right? All right, let's go where you see Dershowitz. Ooh. I know. Okay, 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 okay. We can hold lots of things at the same time. <laughs> All right, so if we look at Dershowitz, when God, second paragraph, when God saw how evil humanity could be, God had a shock of self-realization. God had created this evil creature in God's very own image. So maybe God too has the capacity to do evil. Are you waiting for lightning to come out of the sky, Elena? Right? It's a bit shocking of an interpretation. George is liking it because I knew George would like this. God maybe has a capacity to do evil, a capacity God must learn to control. Like a person who understands that they need to make a public promise in order to control their destructive instinct, God binds God's self never to flood the earth again. Even God needs rules. So after the flood, God what God did what God should have done before God killed everybody, enacted a code of laws that explicitly punished murder by death. All right, so what is Dershowitz suggesting? One answer to the questions Lisa and Betsy have raised. God wipes everybody out because God realizes how evil they are. But because humanity has been created in God's image, God realizes it's not just them, it's me. So is there a possibility then of creating a being in God's image, suggests Dershowitz, that doesn't have evil. That would be the angels. 
God's already got them, according to Midrash, right? God's already got angels. Why does God create humanity? The angels just do God's will, right? They do their jobs. They go up and down the ladder, right? They go in and out of the veil, right? Right, as we know from Jacob's dream, right? That's what they do all day long, doing the will of God all day long, all day long, all day long. Malachim, messengers, all day long, all day long. That doesn't seem to interest God so much. God seems, you know, the rabbis say, why did God create humanity? Because God loves stories. But according to some of this, it seems God, God created humanity and wasn't content with the angels because God wanted something in God's own image. Dershowitz is suggesting, by definition, maybe, that means evil's included. evil's included. It will never go away. And will never go away. Rami Shapiro says, you know, why, why are we shocked by that? If God is reality, capital R, reality unfolding, of course it's got evil and horror and terrible things in it because it's reality. How can it be otherwise? Reality is reality. Right. So that's, that's one possible answer is because there's not another way for us to be created in the divine image and be given free will. There's just not another way for it to happen. Um, that's, that's one explanation. So then why does humanity get punished for being self? So why does humanity get punished for being itself? It seems, lightning, lightning, I know. It seems God didn't know that till now. It seems God learned that it's not going to change. So wiping it all out, like, what's what's the point? There, it's not going to change. Either I have to wipe out humanity and create something else, but that's not what God does. And then what does God tell the Adam? What's God's first thing to the Adam? What are you supposed to do? Be fruitful and multiply. So God seems to want humanity. So what happened? God seems to have learned, this is what I'm going to have to live with. But here's what's going to change. I'm going to tell Noah that Noah is created in the divine image. So here, let's go to what changes. Go to um, this paper, the one that's the photo copy from the book. This is the late... Um, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, <clears throat> former chief rabbi of London. So the top on the top left corner, I wrote for you what was on the page just before this because I didn't want to waste paper. There's a key word repeated seven times in Genesis 1 when we studied Genesis 1. What was that word? Tov. Right? God looks and see. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. In Genesis 9, one word is repeated the same amount of times, seven times. So in, in Genesis 1, what we get is creation's good. Creation's good. Living things are good. It's all good. Humankind's good. What do we get repeated seven times in Genesis 9? This story, breed, covenant. So it seems God has learned, if I'm going to have to put up with that to have humans, something has to shift. And that seems to be the idea of A, letting the human being know it's created in God's image. But what does Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs say about that? <clears throat> so that's one difference between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. The second difference, 
They both state that God made the human person in God's image, but they do so in markedly different ways. In Genesis 1, we read, let us make uh, the human in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over and rule over and blah, 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 blah. So God created the human in God's image. In the image of God, God created them, male and female, God created them. At the same time, P.S., It's Genesis 2, the other Genesis story in the Israelite tradition that says Adam was created and then Chava. In Genesis 1, Zachar v'nekevah bara otam, male and female, God created them. Okay, so. Much more fair. Well, it's much more, it's much more in line with like the story we might write. Okay. This is how it's stated in Genesis 9. Whoever sheds the blood of a person by a person shall his blood be shed for the image for in the image of god god made the human the difference here is fundamental says Sachs. genesis 1 tells me that i am in the image of god genesis 9 tells me the other person is in the image of god genesis 1 speaks about the dominance of homo sapiens over the rest of creation Genesis 9 speaks about the sanctity of life and the prohibition of murder. The first chapter tells us about the potential power of human beings, while the ninth chapter tells us about the moral limits of that power. We may not use it to deprive another human who is created in the image of the divine to deprive that being of life. This also explains why the keyword repeated seven times changes from good to covenant. When we call something good, we are speaking about how it is in itself. But when we speak of covenant, we are talking about relationships. A covenant is a moral bond between people because it's, you know, a dog doesn't need a covenant. A dog is just good. Dogs don't need covenants. Dogs are perfectly fine and lovely and wonderful the way they are when they have good humans. About in charge of them. Exactly. It's a covenant about limits. So that seems to be something that Sachs is suggesting that, that it's about saying you don't get to do whatever you want. God has bound God's self to a covenant with humanity. I'm not going to do this again by water, by water. Sorry. I'm not saying it won't happen again. I'm not going to do it by water. So God makes a covenant to limit God's self and God's future behavior. And we're going to see a beautiful interpretation of that. And um, <clears throat> and makes a covenant with human beings that now limits what human beings are allowed to do. God gives them rules. Do you see how this is a Jewish story now? God gives them Torah That's the only way God learns. God realizes that humanity and I, the divine, can coexist. Is if I give them, God realizes I didn't teach them. I didn't give them rules. I didn't put limits. I didn't impose limits on them. And then I'm surprised the world is filled with Hamas. I really do have to believe, and I'm going to get hate mail for this, but I don't care. I'm so cranky. I don't care. I have to wonder, those who perpetrated this violence, what if they had had loving, attentive, limit-setting authority figures in their lives? Would they be filled with stress? 
This is a Jewish story. Limits teaching is how we raise children in love, limiting them because they that's what it means to create beings that are tzaddikim, that have the that are righteous. Is that they understand the limits, right? I don't know about y'all. That was my entire parenting during toddlerhood was lovingly setting limits and boundaries because that's when they know they're safe. Otherwise, when they're adults, they think you didn't love them. That's a, and they know you didn't on some level, right? Like, because how do we prove our love for them? We lovingly set limits because that takes energy to not impose constantly and an authoritarian parent way. But if you let them do whatever they want, you are not raising adults that people want to be around. I can tell within 30 seconds an adult that did not have limits set for them as a child. I know you can, George, and I know you can, Siegel. You can too, up there, so Mark. Right? Our psychotherapists know 30 seconds when someone sits down and they start talking, you can tell. So this person did not have limits lovingly set for them as children. They are. Every teacher, every teacher knows that. Every teacher knows that. And that we believe Torah teaching is love. And it seems that's what God has learned here, says and says Sachs, right? Um, the, what differentiates the world after the flood from the world before is that the terms of the human condition have changed. God no longer expects to be good, uh, longer expects people to be good because it's in their nature to be so. To the contrary, God knows that every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And this, despite the fact that we were created in God's image, right? Um, so, so anyway, so, so, so now what has to be stressed and, and put in place are boundaries, covenant, relationship, and the laws that govern them. So that page 11, that first, that first full paragraph, that is why with one simple move, God transformed the terms of the equation. After the flood, God taught Noah. And through him, all humanity, that we should think not of ourselves, but of the other human being as being in the image of God. That is the only way to save ourselves from violence and self-destruction. I won't do it again, but y'all might. If there are not limits imposed, if you are not educated to see the divine in the other who's different from you, Hamas might destroy everything. <laughs> There's a lot of science. That line, though, every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, that's so extreme. I mean, there's, yeah, yeah. there's nothing extreme. good yeah. From, yeah. in a person. There's nothing innately good. So it's a bit, right. So it's a yeah. bit overstated, possibly in order to make the case, yeah. make the point, um, right? Um, I think, though, this is chutzpah because I'm going to argue a little bit with the, the way it's translated. Yetzer, I, I think the way I would translate it is there is within the Yetzer of the human being, Ra, that, that, that God realizes like that's part of the mix. There's no part of their Yetzer. Like, there's, not, there's, there's no way I can excise it or remove it. It's just, it's, it's everywhere. It's, it's not all they are, 
but it's it's pervasive enough that it can't just be surgically removed. It has to be, I think, the definition of evil, especially with babies, uh, the environment. Clearly, the parents have a lot to do with their response to the babies, but what the baby does is not evil. It looks for the boundaries, which is not evil at a baby or adults. You can argue, uh, but for the babies, it's not evil. It's, it's instinct. Instinct looking and looking for boundaries. Midrash teaches Yetzer Tov, Yetzer Ra. Yes. So the Yetzer is a big word. Yes. So Yetzer biblically is different from what Yetzer, not so different, but but the Midrash comes to say, yes, there's Yetzer Hara. Yes, we have a f- part of our f- having been formed is Ra, but there's also Yetzer Hatov. There is also, and to come to kind of correct the heavy handedness, of the Torah text, the rabbis are very clear, but we have Yetzir HaTov. What enables us to live into the one and not the other? Boundaries, rules, Torah, right? Limits, and 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 learning what good is too. Not just what we're not supposed to do, but what are we supposed to be doing that helps us cultivate the Yetzir HaTov. Lee, did you have your... Well, I'm just, this, is, this might be totally exciting. But it feels like it sounds like the kind of thing you say, you know, like fight in a relationship that you know is going to keep going, but you have to like say all of the things in the fight anyway. Say more. Like it feels like God is saying, like, in this moment, everything about people is evil. And like that's not how God is always going to feel about it, but like needs to like express that feeling now to be able to you always yeah. put the dishes away while I'm still eating. You always do that. You all, right, so the sense of that it's the overstatement because you're angry or so aware of it right now that you use language like always and never is what I hear you saying. And so and that you yeah. like actually like have to express that to people to move. Because that's what your experience is in this moment. And you need that other person to know that. In relationship, what I love that you started that sentence with is a relationship you know you're going to stay in. You're not saying you always clean up the dishes before I'm done eating. And that's so disrespectful. I've asked you not to do that. And therefore, I want a divorce. Because if you want to, you really don't need to say it, which is the genius insight I hear from you. The chedesh I hear from you is I don't need to say it if I want a divorce. I'm just going to say, can you please sign this? (laughs) <laughs> I don't I don't need to waste my breath. I don't need to get all worked up. I don't need to waste my air or how many words the rabbis say were given. I don't need to waste any of them. Could you die once you've used up all your words that you're allotted? Um, right? So Jews must be allotted a lot of words. So um, so I, I don't have to say it if I'm not going to stay in the relationship. I'm all reactive and using this big language always and never because I have to get it off my chest in order. To stay in the relationship. Beautiful. Beautiful. I'm sure Mark will correct me, and he's probably thinking what I'm going to say. I hope that's the case. <laughs> the babies are, are when they're born, they're still part of the mother. Mother is the only connection. There's none other out there. Mm-hmm. It's the baby with the mother. And they reach a stage where they start to find another. And that's, so we talked about, right, that was last week. Yeah. But Moving out of... So 
infanthood yeah, into what George was saying. Mm -hmm. Babies are born not as really not as individuals. They're attachments to the mother, which is another argument that Jews use for having abortions. It's an appendage of the mother. Right. And that separation to realize that there's another doesn't come for quite some time, actually. Mm -hmm. Well, is that right? well, for God, 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 it's more, it's more than that. God is saying, they'll never get it. Yeah, no they'll never get it. I'm going to impose it. Now, if you don't recognize the divinity of another human being, and therefore you take their life from them because you think you get to, you're dead. Yes. Now I'm imposing it. I don't trust you're going to get there. It's just now the, the rule. It's well, now the law. The yes, of course. Of course. We have the death penalty. Yeah. Of course. Every culture that's every culture has what we talked about. Hartman says, David Hartman of Blessed Memory says, intolerable deviance. Intolerable deviance is is punished with you lose your right to exist. Every culture has the limit of intolerable deviance. Okay. So one, one addition. So the parent has to be willing to allow the child. Yes. Otherwise, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, say it again loudly so that the thingy can hear you. So, just to go along with what Judith said, parent needs to allow the child. Right. The rest of their life. So, right. So, it's the parent's job, right, to allow the child to individuate and to encourage it. Right. Right. The father, not so dad, but that's a separate <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we could be here all day with that. Right. So we're going to go to that word that we looked at here in verse six. Right. So God sees. So God re regrets having created the human being. And you see where my cursor is. Something about sadness and this reflexive verb. So I'm going to go to this scholar guy that I stumbled across. Who's working with the word andrelamuja. Four dollar word. You don't have it. Andrew Lamuja, um, which is mass, uh, mass collective punishment. Say again. Mass collective punishment, which is what the flood is. It's called Andrew Lamuja. So in his working with the word Andrew Lamuja that I learned this week, um, he talks about the word Vayit Atsev, God grieved. And you don't have this commentary and says the root atzav relates to physical pain as well as to emotional sorrow in Hebrew. This is a Hebrew grammar specialist. He's a PhD in uh, Hebrew grammar and, and it's, and it's other and it's cousin languages, but that's not the end of the story. Skip Moen PhD says, even if it is the end of the earth, the verb is above consecutive plus imperfect a heat pael form, the reflexive form. It is a reflexive that, that is, the description turns back on the subject. The grief isn't an outward movement towards humanity. It is an inward movement affecting God, God's self. Furthermore, the vav consecutive form tells us that this grief extends through time. That's what that vav does. God had it, hap had it happening. It is happening and it will be happening, right? It extends through time as if God felt the grief in the past. 
is feeling the grief in the present and will feel the grief in the future. God's sorrow over the creation is eternal. Even to this day, this guy is saying, God feels the pain of Genesis 6. Especially now. The flood isn't a moment of punishment. It is a perpetual symbol of failure. Every rainbow may be a promise that the earth will never again be wiped clean by water. But at the same time, those brilliant colors in the sky, remember, God put it there to remind who? God. At the same time, those brilliant colors in the sky remind God of the colossal failure of creation, a wound that will last for eternity. Rainbows are God's grief refracted by light. We don't see it that way, though. You stomp on my moment, Judith. (laughs) I'm sorry. Sam's going, oh, not a good idea, whoever. So um, (laughs) the rainbow, according to Skip Moen, (laughs) is God's grief refracted by light. It is how I see it. Our grief can either lead to destruction and destructive behavior, or as God learns, if we impose limits on our destructive impulses because what how do we learn that in general we learn that by doing it and then regretting it and feeling really sad the saddest things i feel are usually not about what's happened to me the saddest i feel is when i reflect on things i've done i've said to other people or refrained like withheld from saying to other people That grief, that grief, when it's refracted through light, creates the keshet. I have choice about what to do with my grief. If it's refracted through light, it becomes a rainbow. You can only have a rainbow when you have rain, the threat, you know, of it could happen again, could happen again, could happen, the threat and the clouds. You have to have both. That's what that's what refracts the light, the white light, and makes it right the rainbow of colors. So what? So I feel like part of the message that I took from his te- his teaching is how do we behave in such a way, especially right now, that our grief does not become regret or anger that then we lash out and further destruction. How? And I don't have an answer for this, but I think my Hiddish for this week, I told Sarah, I don't know where I'm going to land with this. I think I just got it. How do we take our grief and refract it through light so that it's a keshet and not regret that we then move into destruction about? That is our, that is our work right now. It wasn't easy for God. It's not gonna, in the story, it's not going to be easy for us. It's not going to be easy for humanity. It's not going to be easy for anybody. But I think one of the things we learn from this story is, but neither is the alternative. Neither is the alternative. It might be easier like to lean into that, sure. But we, we've learned 
that that's not the answer. It just leads to more suffering and more destruction. I am not suggesting anything about what Israel needs to do right now. I want to be very clear about that. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about humanity. And like, we are evolving. We know that. We are evolving. And as we asked last week, into what? Into what? It's on us to determine that trajectory. It is up to us. The rainbow says one of our, you have it in front of you, you can read it at home. The rainbow is in the ancient world, they fought with bows and arrows. And so one of the beautiful interpretations from our tradition from Nachmanides, the rainbow in the sky is God turning God's bow to humanity to say, peace, peace. I'm not, I'm, I'm done. I'm not, I'm done. That's how you signaled in war in ancient times that you're ready to talk peace is you turned your bow towards the enemy, but you can't shoot him if your string is over there. So you turn your bow to the enemy. So what they see is the inner arch of the bow and arrow. So God has turned God's bow. The question is, will we complete that circle and turn ours and say, okay, we, we have to do this differently. And it is on us and the children we raise into the next generation of grownups and their children that they raise into the next generation of grownups, which way this is going to go. That is our work. That is our task. May we live into the covenant with strength and light and hope. And together we say, Amen. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.